Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast they couldn't stop. Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. I'm Waldy, otherwise known as Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, and I'm joined as always by Bendor Bendy Grosvenor, a man who's rewritten the book on how to make a successful career in art. He's been a dealer, a historian, a TV presenter, and now the poor man's doing this podcast. Oh dear, what a shame, eh, Bendy? How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I love doing this podcast. In fact, the highlight of my week now, Valdi, is listening to you say nice things about me at the beginning. Oh, I'll have to change that then, won't I? <laughs> um, listen, later in the podcast, we'll be looking at curating and how you too can become a great curator, just like Bendy, who's going to be showing us how to do it. But first, we need to study the calendar, because in art, there's no such thing as an unimportant date. Dodgy, 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 anniversary. Ah, yes, it's dodgy anniversary time. Although in this instance, it's not that dodgy, because it's 20 years since the opening of Tate Modern. May 2000 is when the gallery opened. I was there. I remember it well. Now, Bendy, they were in fact planning to celebrate the occasion with all sorts of events this month, and now it's all been cancelled. But this podcast is the podcast they couldn't stop. So we're not cancelled and we can talk about Tate Modern. So, Bendy, are you a fan? Um, half and half. In fact, mostly not. Uh, but I suspect you are. You better try and tell me why it's a good thing first. Oh, yes, half and half. Uh, well, you see, I've got issues with it as well, but I won't start with those. I'll start with the good news. And the good news is that, of course, it has transformed not just the museum landscape in, in Britain, but also I think the way we go to art galleries. Um, I mean, we used to go to art galleries, we'd, we'd walk in at the front, we'd follow some kind of storyline around, usually a chronological storyline, and we'd come out the other end. Um, but at Tate Modern, they've changed all that. So you go in, there is this experience of walking into the building, which in itself is exciting. I mean, the, this, the fact that it's in a converted power station um, gives it this drama, this bigness. I mean, I, I don't think I ever really fully understood what, what size gives to an experience until I went into Tate Modern for the first time after it became a gallery. And it's like a cathedral or, 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 or a giant railway station. There's just a rush and excitement to the size of it. So that thrill is always there. And I have to say, every time I go in there, I feel it. it, it it's it's the, the feeling of the sublime, isn't it? It's, it's this sense of you being able to measure yourself against the scale of the gallery. Um, and of course, it's fun to be in there. There's lots of things to run around and explore. You, you can never visit the same Tate Modern twice. It's always changing, always different. That's stimulating. Uh, it's rather welcoming of different sorts of art crowd as well, which I find is something I admire. I mean, you don't just see people like you and me in Tate Modern, um, you know, art sleuths nosing about. You see women with, with their babies and you see grandmas and you see lots of foreign students and you see lots of tourists. And there's just a, a good sense of a, of a more healthy mix of audience than you normally get in art galleries. So that's good. Um, I suppose the issues I tend to have with it um, are really to do with the hang, which is to say the way the collections are, are displayed and what the point of the collections is. Uh, and I can, I can go on to that, but before I do that, because I'm going to bore everybody with my problems, I want to hear a bit more from you on the good side of things, the half-half bit that likes it. 
Uh, yes, before I bore everybody with my problems, uh, it is a fantastically impressive space. I mean, they, they wanted a cathedral to modern art, and, and blimey, they got one. But I think we can all remember those extraordinary experiences in the turbine hall, you know, whether it's highway sunflower seeds, all that uh, amazing solar eclipse. Um, and now I'm struggling to think of other things positive to say, but, I, I, but I'm not your average um, art gallery visitor. I mean, Wilder, you'll be shocked to hear that I'm, I fancy myself as a rather sensitive person. And I mean this in the way that I'm, I'm easily overwhelmed when it comes to senses. Uh, you know, I, I don't like loud noises. I don't really like huge oppressive spaces. And those things in Tech Modern, they, they interfere with my, with my art receptors when I go in looking for nice things to look at. And you know that I like my art to be nice because I'm a bit of a softie when it comes to art. And I go into Tech Modern and all the noise and the crowds and the space and the cafes and the slides and the escalators and the bewildering lack of direction and the signage. I think I want to get out of here. I think I'd like to get on the lovely boat they have on the River Thames and, and go down to Tate Britain where it's quieter and calmer and there's pictures I like and and I'm aware that that makes me out to be um a bit of a stick in the mud but it's just the way it is with me I'm afraid do you know what Bendy we'll be sticks in the mud together because although <laughs> I've been very kind about Tate Modern I know exactly what you mean and I feel many of those things myself uh, it, on the occasion of the 20th birthday it just seemed churlish to wade in straight away with the moans and the complaints <laughs> but boy are you right i mean in the sense that art looking at art is a personal experience isn't it it's, it's basically a, a communion between an artwork and you i mean that's what it's all about some kind of message whispered from the object to you and that requires a sense of occasion it sure but also it requires a certain kind of mental solitude and a seriousness, if you like. And you kind of need to know where you are. You need to sort of have chosen the occasion. And Tate Modern doesn't allow it, does it? I mean, the collections, because they move around so much, I mean, you never really know where anything is anymore. When I used to go to Tate Britain when it was just the Tate back in Millbank, and for example, the Rothko Room, um, it wasn't brilliantly lit but it was always there in the same place and you could go in there and you could feel this beautiful abstract expressionist artwork on you um, in a slow fashion, slow art. You know, you go to Tate Modern and I don't know where it is anymore. I don't know where the Rothko room is. I, I, they seem to have moved this stuff around. Um, and that sense of communion between you and the artwork is rather hard to generate. I mean, you do feel that it's there basically to make sure that all these people come in there and i mean you know you can't argue with the audience figures i mean they, they, they get five to six million people a year through there and that means they're doing something right you know those people are going for something that they like mm. um but it also means that all these people because tate is free you know that's one of the reasons why they get six million people a year because it's free there's no museum charges involved um they have to make their money from these people in other ways and that's where your bookshops come in, your knick-knack emporiums, you know, all that sort of stuff, hustle and bustle, the cafes. Um, they're all there to try and, you know, make money out of all those people who come in. And all that is understandable because they've got to keep the building going and it cannot be a cheap building to run, of course. But it also gets in the way of the experience of actually looking at art. So that's, that's something that I have a problem with as well. I think for me, I can sum up Tate Modern in one word, and that is uh, overwhelming. I find it essentially overwhelming. 
I think as a building, it is overwhelming. And it's a very sort of, you know, it's a man's idea of a modern art gallery, isn't it? A huge power station plonked in the middle of London with a great phallic tower on it. I mean, you couldn't get much <laughs> more um, sort of male-centric than that, could you? But I also think it, it overwhelms in the sense of, as you say, it, it overwhelms the art inside it. It overwhelms decisions about what you hang and where you hang. And if an art gallery can't get basic things like hanging the art right, then it's got quite a profound problem. And, and don't get me started on Tate and its art hanging problems, because um, I checked last night, actually. Uh, do, you know, do you know how many Constable paintings Tate uh, has in its collection? Uh, 20. 48. Uh, do you know how many are on display at the moment? None. Three. Three. Three out of 48. Yeah. And all the rest are in storage. So mm. here's an art gallery with two beautiful, enormous spaces to hang art in. And yet they can't get it right. It's mostly uh, scrolled away in storage, and what's out there is not often hung especially well. So, so that's that's one of the, the problems I have. And then I think uh, it represents for me everything that sort of went wrong with national museum policy in the early two thousands. You know, this was this was the era where we we just chucked caution to the wind, and we ended up with the financial crash in two thousand eight. And Britain really was crying out for a modern art gallery. Uh, we didn't really have a proper one. But they decided to take all this money and all this art and all this effort and plonk it right in the middle of London. And, you know, we're still paying the price for that in the regions, I think. Uh, and then, of course, it, it Tate Modern overwhelms, I think, also Tate Britain, um, which, which just hasn't had the attention uh, lavished on it that it should do. And lovers of, you know, old historic British art like me, uh, often feel that Tate just gives us the, the you know, the, the bums rush because um, you go around Tate Britain these days. And as I said, you know, only three constables on display and, and the old stuff just feels shoehorned away uh, and, and rather ignored. And I think that's such a sad thing. And I, and I would like to, what I would like to happen over the next 20 years is for Tate to just shake itself up a bit, literally shake itself up, scatter its art around, hang it properly, spread it across the nation and, and really share the best of British art with Britain. Mm. See, British Britishness was something that I think they're vaguely embarrassed by at Tate Britain. Mm. Um, you know, there's a glamour to Tate Modern. There's a glamour to contemporary art and the big sums of money that are being paid for it. And you know, whereas your little constable sketch, I mean, apart from the very fact that it's so small compared with most contemporary art, which is gigantic. You're talking about the sort of room-sized things that go on show at Tate Modern small but also it, it's it, it's just not as glamorous a gig is it and i i've felt with tate britain since the beginning really that that no one really wanted to run it you know the, the britishness was a kind of dirty word and that the, this idea of immersing yourself in a scholarly fashion in the actual art history of britain was something that today's generation of trendy curators and directors just weren't interested in doing yes, yes. Um, and i think it's a much harder gig to make tate britain work than it is to make tate modern work because in tate modern let's face it i mean some of the things they put on there are just there to please the crowds aren't they i mean that there's a cast and holler swings was a good one the or the helter skelters where you went in and you you slid down the helter skelter screaming away happily but later on there were these swings um that were put in the turbine hall and just you just know it's done because 
people like swinging and people like going down a helter skelter and it's fun and, and who wouldn't turn up at, at alton towers uh, to do that you know and the, the, this blurring of a divide between an art gallery that is a temple of enlightenment somewhere where you go to be educated and informed um, and this sort of theme park where you go to have a lot of fun and you can slide down the helter skelter you know the blurring of that has happened um I think it's a it's a cheapening and and a, and a misdirecting of art, and I can hear that you think of that as as well. But listen, six million people a year go there. Can six million people a year be wrong, Bendy? I'm, I'm asking you a serious question. Can <laughs> they be wrong? I mean, this is this is what people will throw back at us here. You know, you're moaning, but look how many people go there. So something's working. Yeah, it, you're right. It is working. But I would dare to suggest that actually, if you put a huge, beautiful building in the middle of any city and opened its doors for free and put swings and slides in, you probably would get that many people coming along. I mean, how much of that is the fact that it's this massively taxpayer-subsidized uh, hall of, you know, like a funfair? I mean, I think lots of people will go to that anyway. Is that what we want from uh, our national art museums? Um, I'm painting myself into a corner here, and I'm I'm struggling to I'm struggling to say, uh, basically, um, I think you should all go to Tate Britain as well. <laughs> ben, do you leave some space in your painted corner for me because I'm right there next to you. I actually totally agree with you. Um, you know, let's have let's have some some serious museum culture. Let's go back to 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 a culture that appreciates art for not just the fun of looking at it and not just the fun of experiencing it, but also, you know, we can learn from it. It's, it's, it's how we're going to be judged. You know, when we are, as a society, we are judged by the art we make. You know, when we're gone, what will people have to judge us by? The art we've left behind. You know, that's how we know about the Greeks. It's how we know about the Romans. It's how we know about the Renaissance. It's how we know about the 17th century. You know, we are going to be judged by, by what we leave behind. And, and that requires a certain, you know, that's, that's quite a serious task. You know, that, that, that requires a lot of us. But anyway, we're getting far too moralistic here. And, and <laughs> uh, we're painting ourselves more and more into this tinier and tinier space in the corner. Although so it's you definitely definitely time to move on it's definitely time to move on but you did raise the question of uh, people not really wanting to be tate britain directors and i'd just like to say that um next time there's a vacancy i'm tempted to apply vote bendy <laughs> isolation isolation it's the part of the podcast where we enjoy what we can in our living rooms because the art galleries are closed and we can only rely on what's given out to us uh, either on the television or on the internet or other mechanical ways. But I know that Bendy's been very busy this week uh, enjoying his isolation. What have you been up to, Bendy? Oh, I've been looking at one of my favourite websites, which is uh, Art UK. Um, this is the website which has a photograph of every publicly owned painting in Britain and it's all marvellously uh, searchable and online and it's you know for an art lover it's just heaven isn't it um, it was started by a friend of mine actually about 20 years ago a man called Fred Hola who was an art lover like us he was he was a diplomat um, and he went into a museum one day in the Fitzwilliam Museum looking to see a painting and they said that it wasn't on display and he said oh well have you got a photograph of it and they said oh no we don't photograph these things and he sort of had a, a Damascene moment there and then in the Fitzwilliam Museum uh, reception lobby that he was going to photograph every painting in Britain. And there, there it is, 20 years later, he did it. Um, and now it's all online. 
Um, and they have lots of functions and things that you can play with pictures inside. And the latest one is something called curations. And you can go and select from all the 220, 30 odd thousand paintings on the website, you can make your own exhibition. You can be a curator. And I've always wanted to be a curator, Waldi. So uh, this was my moment. Um, there's already some really good ones up there, some really good curations. Um, Joan Bakewell has done a selection of her favorite paintings. Uh, there's stuff on the Glasgow boys up here in Scotland. Um, the comedian Phil Jupitus has done a, a really fascinating um, trawl through collage paintings. And collage is not really my thing, but uh, Phil Jupitus has, has chosen some fantastic examples and really explained it. Uh, well, he's, he's really interested in art. I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but very briefly, I know that during the Edinburgh Festival, he does art talks at the Scottish National Gallery. I've been um, to I mean, he's, he, he wanted to be an artist. He's very informed on it. So yes, yes, Phil Jupiter's, yes. Yeah, I'm a great Phil Jupiter's fan. He's, he's one of those men I'm, I actually have to say, I'm a little bit in love with. I'm a huge admirer of his, because um, uh, he's funny and he loves art. So what's not to like? Now, another curations, uh, some of them go a little bit um, off beam. Um, there's someone's done one about bums in art. Uh, so there's over 300 um, buttocks that someone has uh, carefully selected from. <laughs> what, a, what, what a cheek. What, a, <laughs> what cheek. a cheek. There's all sorts of bums on there. Um, and slightly in that vein, my first curation, Waldi, is about cheese in art, because I know you love cheese in art. So I put together a little list of paintings uh, in Britain that show lovely examples of cheese. Yes, I had a look at it. I have to say I enjoyed it enormously. Of course I did. I love cheese almost as much as you do. What's interesting is that um, it takes you to all sorts of different areas in art, doesn't it? Because um, there are some slightly more obvious ones. You'd expect cheese to appear in Dutch 17th century painting, but not necessarily on, on for example, a set of stamps that have been issued or um, a sculpture of a, of, a, of a slab of cheese made out of wood uh, by a contemporary artist. So it's a, you've made it into an interesting bit of terrain. Your choices have fascinated me. I and mean, first of all, tell me what you were thinking about it when you were putting it together. And then I'll tell you what I think about a couple of your choices. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking of all the cheese I like. I mean, um, <laughs> as I've said before, um, I'm such a glutton. And my, my first reaction, even as an art lover, as an art historian, is when I see a still life uh, of cheese, I, I think, oh, that's a lovely piece of cheese. And I should think more deeply about the religious and moral and social aspects of it. And I just really, that, that's the fun thing for me about curating, is that you don't have to think too deeply about it. And that's the great thing about the Art UK's curation function, is that you can just, you can just weave a thread through art history without any particular you know, intense focus on, on anything too academic or too intellectual. You can just put up some nice pictures and say nice things about them. Oh, see, there's where I disagree with you. See, I, I have a problem with that idea of curation. You know, when I started writing about art a long, long time ago now, there were no curators. You know, there were, there were artists and there were people who were dealers and there were people that ran museums. Okay. And of course, there's a big separation between, you know, your proper experts at the British Museum and the V&A. You know, those are curators I respect. They are, they are people who know more about the subject than anybody else in the world. But then later on, this other creature started to waddle into the art world and call themselves a curator. And this was basically anybody, as far as I could see, who could come in off the street and say, I'm a curator. And they'd <laughs> go into an art gallery and they would select a show. And usually it wasn't based on any 
um, big premise or any important idea or any sort of logical journey. It was just, I quite fancy these. And they would go on and do these shows. And everywhere you went, you'd see stuff that is curated by such and such. And it became a meaningless word, I thought. And there was, I mean, I've seen exhibitions, I've written about exhibitions where there might be five paintings and then you read at the bottom, curated by, and there's a list of six people who've curated this show of five paintings. And it's a growth industry, isn't it? In the art world, curating is a growth industry. And I think it's quite important, actually, to separate what you're doing here, which is having a bit of fun in this amazing resource. I mean, there's, there's no argument there. This Art UK resource, every single picture in the country in a, in a, in a collection, you know, it's, it's, it's a gold mine. I know you use it a lot for your art programs, don't you? When you do Indeed. Britain's Lost Masterpieces, yeah. you are finding these masterpieces in this collection, aren't you? Or you're finding them in the photos and you're tracking them down. Yeah. So it's a wonderful resource. And there's nothing wrong either with, with people coming along and making a list like you of, of your cheeses and your favorite cheese paintings. Um, but curation as an idea, and, and the whole idea of a modern curator as this sort of unqualified person who pops up and says, I quite like this and I quite like that. Uh, and then who then, in the end, ends up running, <laughs> you know, Tate Modern or, or, or Tate Britain. Yeah, that, that fills me with dread, to be honest. So let's not overuse the word curator and curation it's not a nice word is it come on it's not a nice word <laughs> well i think you should have a go at this curation and show us all how to do it i mean it may be it may be sort of a reflection of our different art worlds but certainly at my end of things in the you know historic art i think the curators are always hugely qualified um but it is a position of importance and power because you're you're a gatekeeper between the object and the audience and that but comes Andy, with huge responsibility Look, look you, who's your favourite artist? Van Dyke, yeah? Yes. Who's your second favourite artist? Uh, Thomas Lawrence. Thomas Lawrence. Third, third favourite artist. Oh, you put me on the spot here. Oh, uh, uh, anybody who you like. Joshua Reynolds. Joshua Reynolds. Did any of those people need curators? Well, did, art just... need, did art need curators of any sort before about 20 years ago? And I'm not talking about the people who work in museums and who are essentially in charge of a department and who's an expert on Japanese art or an expert on, on constable and who have a position in a museum where they depend on their knowledge and their expertise. I'm talking about the other kind of curator we've got in the modern world. You know, these yeah, people yeah. who sort of put shows together. That's it. What, yeah. what is their role? I mean, does anybody really need them? No, I'm totally with you. That, and that's why I said it's a reflection of our different world. I mean, I, you're right. I mean, for me, a curator is someone who, you know, you're dealing with artists long dead and their paintings are in a store somewhere. So you need someone to, to get them out and put them up. Um, so, but your, 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 your curator is a quite a different beast. And I can see how on, on many occasions it could be quite irritating, frankly. Yeah, they can be. Um, they because can it's, be. So, it's, did... it's something that you and I, I think, care about quite deeply is, is the, the interjection of layers and layers of meaningless guff between an art, an artwork and its audience. And often curators are the people who are responsible for that. Well, it's a layer of middle management, isn't it? It's it's the, as, as art grows as a corporation, you know, as a, as a you know, you've got the people at the top who are basically you know the owners, the dealers, the people that that fund the the, the experience, and you've got the people at the bottom, or rather the other side of it, who are the artists who make it. So you've got the you know the the paymaster and the artist who makes it. That that's a perfectly reasonable and, and ancient relationship that's always gone on. But it's these layers in the middle. That's where all the problems start, I think. Mm. 
Jesus, I'm sounding terrible there. I, 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 I apologise for the big moan. It's probably time, time <laughs> to move on. So, Bendy, there you are, Bendy, the curator. Um, I, I've also sort of stayed with this Art UK idea because um, I've been doing it the quiz that they have in the Guardian every day. Um, it's a kind of art quiz set by regional museums, so all the museums um, around Britain. And mostly, therefore, about other paintings, exactly the same paintings you're talking about, the ones that have been photographed that now belong to the National Collection. Um, and I, I'm, I'm interested in it because it's, it's part of this thing that's happening at the moment where art seems to be helping people in mm. times of isolation mm. um, in, in sort of modest ways, nice ways. Um, it's giving them something to do. It's, it's become a sort of pleasure, um, which you can sort of uh, equate to baking or the other, the other stuff that people are doing, baking, exercises, you know, because it's not too demanding, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's rather pleasing. And I like quizzes anyway. I mean, and I think that this particular set of quizzes is, is rather good because apart from anything else, it's been introducing me to various museums that I have to say, you know, I'm ashamed to say I've never heard of. I mean, the, the, the other day, uh, you know, they had one from the Dorwich House Museum in London, in Richmond Park. I've never heard of the Dorwich House Museum in Richmond Park, but it was interesting stuff about the collection, what they've got in there. So it's both a way of letting us find out about smaller museums around the country, but also within those museums, these rather difficult quizzes because the, the small museums tend to have things in them that we don't know anything about um, uh, are rather stimulating. Um, so I don't know if you had a look at any of these, but I, I think it's rather nice that art is playing this useful function or performing this useful function of a kind of balm, um, a comforting presence in our time of isolation. Oh, I love them. I was very glad that you put me onto them. Uh, they're really quite uh, engaging. And I have to say, I found them quite difficult. I don't know about you, Bardi, but uh, each quiz you get eight questions and then you get a score out of eight at the end. And I never made it above five. <laughs> did you do the National Gallery one? The National Gallery did quite a good one. I, they did a good one, but I got four there. I mean, it's just horrifyingly embarrassing. <laughs> the only the one I got five in was Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. And I only, I only did quite well there because they featured some of the paintings that we had on an episode of Britain's Lost Masterpieces. So that was cheating. Oh, well, I, yeah, I did quite well on the National Gallery one. I found that a bit easier. But um, enough of that. We've been talking for far too long. It's time to move on to the really important part of the podcast where we get to choose the picture we could have on our wall if we could have absolutely anything. On the Wall so, Bendy, back to your curating, I suppose, here. Um, you get to choose yet more art that you can select. Um, what have you gone for this week? Oh, so Joshua Reynolds, a self-portrait. Uh, and we'll have the picture on the website. But this is a self-portrait that had not been seen or recorded for about 200 years when it came up at auction in London in 2012. Um, and that was when I was in the art trade. And, uh, the estimate was 60 to 80,000 quid. And this was a picture that just absolutely struck me and um, one of my problems when it comes to art is that I, I do covered things and that's why this on the wall feature is so dangerous because it's making me want all this stuff actually to actually have it um, like Gollum and say it's mine um, and I you know I do sort of have flights of fantasy and I sometimes think well if I you know remortgage the house could maybe no, no other bids came in could I maybe get it for 50,000 quid um, that was not possible because um, I used to work for Philip Mould and he and I, he quite rightly recognised that this was potentially going to make um, much more money. Uh, in the end, it made £360,000. Um, 
and uh, Philip bought it, and we had the great, the great pleasure of restoring this picture for the first time in, you know, uh, many, many decades. Um, and it's an unfinished self-portrait, painted about 1760. Uh, Reynolds is looking uh, directly at the viewer. And now, now I love self-portraits. Uh, I think when it comes to portraits, a self-portrait is usually the best example of an artist. And, and Reynolds was one of the best portraitists that Britain ever produced. And I also love unfinished paintings because they don't, they don't date. And this is extremely unfinished. Now, when the painting came up at auction, as is often the case with unfinished pictures, at some point in its past life, someone had decided to finish it and it had lots and lots of overpaint on it. And so uh, sitting down with Philip and Simon Gillespie was a huge thrill as we gradually took off the layers of later overpaint to reveal this fantastic brushly painted, really impetuous, uh, quick, brilliant self-portrait. And we uncovered things like, you know, where Reynolds had just let the wet paint dribble down the canvas. It was just extraordinary to see it. And I think it's actually one of the greatest self-portraits that was ever produced in Britain. It's a shame that it's so little known. I wanted to be more known. It's it's very communicative. It's the sort of painting you could talk to. Uh, and I'm like Prince Charles. I do talk to my paintings. And so I would absolutely love to have this in my collection. And and I think Joshua and I would get on like a house on fire. Yes, I mean, it's, it is a wonderful thing. I can't say I've seen it before. Um, I, mean, I know he, he did like a self-portrait, didn't he? He rent Reynolds. So there are quite a few, aren't there? There's that famous one where he's he's talking to a bust of Michelangelo, isn't there? Mm. Um, where where he's sort of equating himself with Michelangelo, and that's more of a sort of pompous um, uh, kind of scene-setting mm. presentation piece, isn't it? Well, this is something else. So, but it is Rembrandty. Rembrandt's the one, isn't it? Because uh, it, it's got that sort of dark, older look in his eyes where he really sort of fixes you with his soul you know um and it's 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 got that emotional content that people i think forget that reynolds was very good at mm. um and 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 rembrandt is the name that keeps keeps popping up when you think about about who else was doing this because he did do a lot of self-portraits through his career as well didn't he so there are these early ones and there are these late ones and there are these ones which um, which, which I mean, you say it's unfinished. Um, I mean, it, it, it doesn't feel unfinished because the actual face, the the, the expression, mm. the sort of locking of his consciousness with your consciousness, that all seems pretty complete to me. Um, mm. And though I don't, I don't know the picture, I've never seen it. But wow, yes, it's a it's a wonderful thing. Yes, I find it quite touching too. I mean, Reynolds had um, he had a cleft lip, and you you can see it you can see it in this portrait. He never makes it really quite prominent. Um, and in his more sort of formal public self-portraits, he, he, he hides it more. But in this picture, you can see it, and um, uh, it's quite touching. Mm. Yes, well, um, I've gone for something very different, as always, Bendy. Um, I was watching, I've been watching the television a lot during the lockdown, and I'm quite a lot. I quite like murder mysteries. You know, I, quite, I like a murder mystery. <laughs> um, it just it just seems so far away from my daily life. And <laughs> um, I've noticed that Good. that art keeps popping up in these murder mysteries. So I was watching an episode of Lewis, which is the Morse uh, follow-up, um, and suddenly William Dobson pops up in it. You know, yeah. my hero, William oh. Dobson, your hero. And there's a whole bit about William Dobson, and and the, in fact, the whole mystery hinged on this painting by Dobson that had something very revealing in the background. 
Um, and then I was watching um, Endeavour, which is also set in Oxford, and it's the young Morse. And as somebody is going around murdering all these blokes at the colleges in Oxford, and it turns out it's a, it's a young woman who is replicating the pictures of Artemisia Gentileschi. Oh my God. She's going around and she's sticking things, hammering nails into the people's ears, and then she's cutting their heads off, beheading them. And, so that's, that was quite interesting. But then I saw this one, it's a series that's called Vienna Blood. Um, and it's a, it's a kind of sub-Sherlock Holmes series set in Vienna at the turn of the 20th century. We know the, the Vienna of Freud and Schoenberg and Mahler and Gustav Klimt. And, it, and there's this scene in, the, in this murder this series where um, uh, a young psychologist called Max Lieberman uh, which is also the name of a famous painter, by the way, German painter, and this policeman who he's working with, they're the kind of Sherlock Holmes and Watson in Vienna Blood. Um, but the, the young psychologist goes to an opening at the secession building, and there's this Gustav Klimt picture, this very strange picture, which starts sort of throbbing and hallucinating, and um, I won't go into too much of the, the plot, but the picture plays a sort of fundamental role in it. And I'd forgotten about Klimt, and I'd forgotten about this picture, because it is a real picture. Um, it was painted for the secession in, in 1901, and it's a tribute to Beethoven, right? The whole exhibition in which it appeared is a tribute to Beethoven, but you'd never know it from looking at it. So when you look at it, it is one of the most ridiculous great pieces of modernist art I've ever seen. In the middle is what appears to be a giant gorilla that's sort of grinning, but half its teeth are missing, but it's a gorilla that would happily sit in, in the pages of a, of a Warner Brothers cartoon or something, or a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. And behind the, the this surrounding this gorilla are various grotesque figures, usually women who are representing this sort of weakness or rather or one of the vices or intemperance or sickness. And there's just this crazy scene. Um, and so I was wondering what, what on earth this had to do with Beethoven. And it turns out that the whole freeze is, a, is an evocation, if you like, of, of Beethoven's greatest symphony, the Ninth Symphony. And that the bit we're looking at, the gorilla with all the women prancing around, um, that is the, as it were, a representation of all the things that are wrong with the world. Um, these are the sort of evils that have, that have landed upon us, which of course struck a chord with me with the whole isolation thing, because illness and, is one of the, the evils. And what happens in the rest of the freeze, right? And this is where it gets good. What happens in the rest of the freeze is that these evils are conquered by the arts. So if you head off to the right of this picture into the other bit of the freeze, you've got all the arts, poetry, art, architecture coming along, all represented by beautiful sort of wispy figurines and they're saving the world. And what they did at the actual opening is, is, is that's when Beethoven's Ode to Joy would start playing. So you'd hear this great bit of Beethoven, Ode to Joy, and you'd be seeing how the arts save the world and how the arts overcome the gorilla and all the other horrible things in the, in the Klimt picture. So that cheered me up. You know, I think it's a ghastly picture, but I love the message of the arts saving the world. Mm. Um, so I thought if I had this hanging up in, in my museum without walls, um, it would give me nourishment, plenty to think about. I could have a good laugh at the gorilla, but then I could also at the end of the story, feel safe and feel that art, art is working its magic on me and that the balm of art is there to save us. So that's why I've chosen it. Well, I can see why it would appeal to you. I, I mean, it's, I've never actually seen the painting in the flesh. I thought it was a fascinating thing. Um, and Klimt is, my goodness, he is fascinating, isn't he? Because 
in many ways his paintings shouldn't really work. I mean, they're sort of they're, the way they drift into that sort of esoteric craftiness, that craft nature they have. They're not far off the sort of art they sell at, I don't know, in Glastonbury. Um, and on what, in, you, they sail so close to a line of disaster, but they, they always triumphantly come back, don't they? Um, and this one is, uh, is full of, as you say, ghastliness, but also um, brilliance. Well, I'm glad you like it. You've left me with a fabulous image there, Bendy at Glastonbury. I'll, I'll take that with me as well. Uh, that's enough from us. We've been babbling for far too long. Till the next podcast, it's bye-bye from me and from Ben Dorr. It's also cheerio. Waldy and Bendy. Bendy.